Welcome to another episode of the Tom Shimmer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone, and happy spring break, or March break, or whatever your jurisdiction calls it. Now, some of you have already had that, your second semester break, but many of you are on the verge of it, and I know you're excited. It's warmer, sun is going down a little bit later, uh, feeling like it's starting to look like spring out there, at least for us in the Northern Hemisphere. For those listeners in the Southern Hemisphere, we know you're headed into fall. Um, But by the way, you are allowed to be excited about time off and vacation time. Can I just say that? Uh, These people in society, especially on social media, and especially within the profession, this shaming of teachers because they're excited about a break is ridiculous. Okay, people saying like, well, don't let your students see how happy you are. Or how will that make them feel if you're so excited to be away from them? You know what? Stop it. Okay, when I was in school, the teachers like on the last day before, (laughs) and I'm going to sound like the old man yelling at the clouds here telling kids to get off my lawn. But back in my day, okay, when I was in school, the teachers almost ran us over as we were leaving the school on the last day before spring break. They were so excited to get out of there. And you know what? We live to tell about it. I'm not trying to be insensitive to individual students, but I think we're developing a really bad habit in education right now. And and what we're doing is we're projecting things onto students that may or may not even be there. I understand that. And a lot of times it's just performative. It's just throwing something on social media to just show everyone else how insightful you are about the, you know, the three-dimensional chess that you're playing while the rest of us are excited about our spring break. Um, I understand that the disconnection from school may be problematic for students, and I really am empathetic to that. And I, I do know we have to find ways to help support those students and, 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 and deal with those acute situations. But you should never feel guilty about wanting a break or from having some time off to spend with your family. So enough with the teacher shaming, especially on social media and especially from within the profession. Okay, take your superiority complexes and go pound sand. Okay, I probably would have said that in a more colorful way, but I don't really know if you're in the car listening to the podcast with your kids or something like that. So I'll, I'll try to keep it uh, keep it family friendly at this point. So there, you know, I'm I'm just sick of it. And uh, how about that for an opening <laughs> opening rant before we even get to the main part of the podcast? Thanks for listening in again this week. Um, as I always say, a big welcome to any new listeners uh, joining in for the first time. Your listening and subscribing to the podcast means a ton, and I really do appreciate it. And if you like what you hear and you want to spread the word to your colleagues or on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever, I would certainly appreciate that too. Uh, Today, I'm excited to have Alexa Schmidt joining me for the interview. Alexa is the middle school principal at the International School of Kenya uh, in Nairobi. And Alexa recently completed her uh, doctoral studies in justice, equity, and cultural competence in international education. So that's what we talk about primarily But we also talk about international education in general. Uh, In Assessment Corner this week, my focus is going to be on the normative grading tendencies that can kind of linger within our grading practices and be problematic and really serve as a distraction to our efforts to implement sound and accurate grading practices. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. My interview with Alexa Schmidt is coming up, but first, don't at me. But I want to open this week by picking up where I left off last week and going on a bit of a tangent. Now, last week, you'll recall that we explored the psychological phenomenon from Dr. Emily Pronin called introspection illusion, the idea being that we all have blind spots. 
right? When it comes to ourselves, we don't always see ourselves in the most accurate light. We see ourselves through the most favorable lens. And I shared that Stephen Covey quote uh, that stuck with me for more than 30 years. We judge ourselves by our intentions and others by their actions. And I've, I've been thinking about this all week and wondering if maybe this is the reason it seems like we can't really talk to each other anymore or can't debate with one another anymore. Now, before I begin, I want to make sure that you understand this is not coming from any acute personal experience, okay? This is not a situation where something happened to me and and then I come on the podcast and vent about it in some veiled fashion. Nothing happened, okay? It really is just an observation I've been making for some time now. So it's, and, and I think it's all kind of coming together for me. So just like the disclaimers at the beginning of some movies, any likenesses to real events, real people, or real situations is purely coincidental. Okay. All right. The tangent I want to take is essentially a think aloud about finding the balance between defending yourself and being defensive. I talked about a lot about this a few weeks ago when I opened with the segment called The Allure of Labels. You might recall that, right? So between that and last week's open, I think I see more clearly now one of our modern dilemmas. I don't know if I have it all figured out, but I'm starting to see it more clearly. And let me also say that I am not talking about overt actions where others just deny the reality of their own actions. I'm not talking about, you know, overt sexism or racism, for example, where those actions are undeniable and um, indisputable, right? So sexual misconduct in the workplace, something like that. That's, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about here situations that truly are open to interpretation. And this is what's kind of made my head hurt all week. Okay, let me try to break this down for you. Here are the overarching questions that I want to deal with. One, what is the difference between defending yourself and being defensive? And two, who gets to decide which one we're being? Here's another way to express that. What if the accuser is experiencing introspection illusion? Okay, so follow me here. Let's just say someone, let's call them Mike. Let's say Mike hurls an accusation at me and I believe it's untrue. So I respond by defending myself. I say to Mike, you know, that's not true. That's not what happened or whatever. And Mike says, in response, he says, whoa, why are you being so defensive or fragile or sensitive? And I respond with, I'm not being defensive or fragile. What you said is wrong. Well, who's right? Let's look at it from each person's perspective. Okay, let's start with Mike. Mike thinks he's right because he might think to himself, hey, Tom, listen, you've got a blind spot. Introspection illusion, right? You know, I've thought about what you said or what you did or whatever the situation was. And I've come to the conclusion that it was offensive or inappropriate or whatever, right? So Mike thinks I'm judging myself inaccurately because of my naive realism. We talked about that last week as well. Naive realism is when we have this default disposition that we see the world as it is in an objective reality. So Mike says to me, look, it's my interpretation. Doesn't matter what you intended, I'm, and then fill in the blank, offended, hurt, angry, or whatever. So Mike thinks I'm being defensive, and I think I'm just defending myself against what I see as a false accusation. So now let's flip this to my perspective. Mike thinks I'm being delusional. I have introspection illusion. Except Mike doesn't have access to my thoughts. 
he thinks he's analyzed everything objectively, quote-unquote objectively, and drawn a conclusion based on all that information. But what if Mike is the naive realist? What if Mike has a blind spot? What if Mike is the one suffering from introspection illusion? Then what? Isn't it also possible that Mike lacks personal self-awareness? So do we just default to the whole, I'm offended, therefore you have to be wrong mantra? Is that it? That can't be right, can it? I mean, there is that quote made famous by comedian Ricky Gervais. Uh, Just because you're offended doesn't mean you're right. Now, I'm not sure if that's his expression, because I've actually heard that expression attributed to others, including psychologist John Haidt. But anyway, Ricky Gervais is clearly the one that made that famous. Is there no more, like, truth? Have we maybe swung the constructivist pendulum too far? I mean, constructivism is a theory of psychology that says people construct knowledge rather than passively take it in, right? Take in information. As people experience the world and reflect upon those experiences, they they build their own representations and incorporate new information into their pre-existing knowledge. So in essence, reality is socially constructed and that humans are meaning makers in their lives and essentially construct their own realities. That all sounds good and right, and I don't necessarily disagree with that wholeheartedly, but until we start asking questions about Mike and I, suddenly we have to ask some important questions. So if that's all true, that reality is socially constructed, then does that mean Mike and I are both right? So if you look at it from Mike's experience, uh, perspective, Mike experienced my again, comment, action, whatever. He reflected upon that experience. He built his own representations and incorporated that new information into his pre-existing knowledge. But guess what? So did I. Let's, let's talk about a couple of scenarios. What if Mike is wrong, but we act as if he's right? Now, Mike was offended, and let's just say... I acquiesce to that assertion, so I reflect and agree that I was being defensive and and I when I really was just defending myself. Okay. You might think to yourself, well, what's the big deal, Tom? Well, does that leave Mike with a heightened sense of entitlement? Like he just thinks to himself, you know, when I'm offended, I just assert it, and therefore it is so. Does that leave Me second-guessing my internal dialogue and my reflection, I know I wasn't being offensive, and yet I gave way to the accusation, so maybe I start to second-guess myself and my actions, right? Does that cause me to become hesitant or to withdraw from any of these kinds of situations altogether? Now, let's reverse this. What if Mike is right, I was being offensive, but in the end we act as if he was wrong? Does that leave... Mike feeling unheard and dismissed? Does he hesitate to speak up next time because he's lost some trust in his internal conversation and his constructed reality? Do I emerge with a strengthened sort of social armor and sense of entitlement where there might be less or even no accountability for my actions? Now, what makes this scenario even more complicated would be if Mike and I were of different races, 
or if instead of Mike, it was Michelle. I, I feel like this is a bigger issue than some might be seeing. If reality is truly socially constructed, then who gets to socially construct it? Well, in reality, it's probably not me, okay? Because I'm a white, 53-year-old heterosexual male. So I'm, I'm pretty low on the list these days of who gets to, to socially construct reality. But is that right? Does my identity dictate the degree to which I am permitted by society to socially construct reality? Does that mean, given my tale of the tape, that anytime I defend myself against a false accusation, others just get to assign defensiveness to my reaction without an actual reality check? At the same time, does that mean, given my tale of the tape, that I can just dismiss your claims as a projection of characteristics I know internally are wrong without an actual reality check? You might be right, but there's no reality check there. And if reality is socially constructed, what even is a reality check? And we'd have to ask, who's reality? Surely it's not a competition to claim offense first. Or... Is it? As I talked about again in the allure of labels, maybe that's the reality that we've socially constructed. Like through social media and other human interactions and interpretations, do we just default to the offended party? Well, again, I'm not talking about historical atrocities here. Okay, so we're not talking about those sort of big ticket items, if you will. But if we just default to what's socially constructed, then chances are that social construction is going to come from the majority. So if we look at this from a macro perspective, one sort of might ask the question, where does the construction of societal realities end and where does groupthink begin? Economist Timur Kuran developed the concept he called preference falsification. So when you have this majority socially constructed reality, you may be witnessing preference falsification, okay? And as Rob Henderson in Psychology Today uh, defined, preference falsification means to express a belief you don't actually hold in order to fit into a social group. It can be uncomfortable to disagree with others, especially with those who you consider to be coalitional or political allies. So the majority is possible. The majority doesn't actually believe something, but they agree with it simply because it's just easier not to disagree. So then we would ask, is the social construction or the societal construction that's driven by the majority always correct? I don't know that it is. Now, I don't really have an answer for this. These are, these are sort of my wonderings. This really is a think aloud. And this is sort of what keeps me up at night. And well, truthfully, I fall asleep instantly. So it's, it's what wakes me up in the morning earlier than desired, right? So I know, I know, TMI. We don't need to know your sleep patterns, Tom. For me, it comes down to this question, for which I really don't have an answer. And, and if you have an answer for this, then maybe in this situation, I want you to at me, okay? Go ahead, at me. But here's the question. How do we reconcile 
on the one hand, that we are meaning makers in our own lives and essentially construct our own realities while simultaneously being inflicted with introspection illusions where we have blind spots about our true selves and our self-constructed realities. I'll ask it one more time. How do we reconcile, on the one hand, that we are meaning makers in our own lives and essentially construct our own realities while simultaneously being inflicted with introspection illusions where we have blind spots about our true selves and our self-constructed realities. Joining me today for the interview is Alexa Schmidt. Alexa is the middle school principal at the International School of Kenya in Nairobi. Now, I actually met Alexa at the American Embassy School in New Delhi, India, where she was the assistant principal in the middle school. And Alexa made a great first impression on me, that's for sure, because during my early visits to the school, I noticed how actively involved Alexa was in so many of the assessment coaching meetings that I was conducting. Whether No matter what middle school team I was meeting with, Alexa was there, she was taking notes, and that told me two things right away. One, Alexa is a lifelong learner. Now, I know that expression is often used as a cliche, but with Alexa, it's very true. And two, she's a leader. She's a leader by example, and she is an instructional leader and cares very deeply about teaching and learning. Alexa recently completed her doctoral dissertation in justice, equity, and cultural competence. And so that's primarily why Alexa is here. Uh, but it's also a chance for me to get caught up with a friend. I've been to Nairobi two times, and each time there was always pizza night at the Schmidt household, which was always great. And now, Alexa, that that's happened twice, it is locked into the calendar upon any future returns to Nairobi. Uh, so, Alexa, I want to welcome you to the Tom Shimmer podcast. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. And I definitely look forward to our next pizza in Nairobi together. <laughs> That's right. It's always a good chance to get caught up with you and Stuart and the girls. And uh, 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 I, I look forward to it now. Our last pizza party was February of 2020. And of course, um, as we were just chatting before hitting record, uh, we had no idea what was in front of us. I mean, we knew COVID was out there, but we had no idea how serious things were about to get uh, for the rest of, of 2020. So um, just an, an interesting year it has been. And I want to pick up on that as we we start and, and start with COVID. Uh, I'm hoping you can maybe give us some perspective on COVID and walk us through the, what the last year has looked like, uh, not just at ISK, but in Kenya in general. Kind of what, what has this last year looked like for the school and what has been and was and now is the situation with COVID in Kenya? Yeah, so um, shortly after you came here last February, it was only a couple weeks later, and we, we did start to realize we needed to have our plans in place. And luckily, we're a school that has really good plans in place for, you know, different kinds of situa emergency situations. Um, so I think it was March 13th was a Friday before our spring break. And uh, I think that was the first day there was a case in Kenya officially. And uh, at that point, the, I think the president had gotten on the airwaves and said all schools in Kenya will be shut down. Um, and there was curfews put in place, mask mandates, and, and so on. Um, so we ended up finishing the school year virtual um, and uh, didn't do any special like extension of the year. You know, different schools take different options. Um, unfortunately, many of us were unable to fly home at that time because there were um, the airports have been closed in Kenya. And so my family, we stayed in Kenya over the summer, but actually it's a really lovely place to be. And it actually did help with my dissertation work. 
Um, so there were some benefits for us to be able to hunker down um, comfortably and safely as a family. Um, we postponed the start of our school year, just not sure about both the airports opening as well as uh, what the situation would be with what the government would allow for schools. Um, the president continued to hold that students shouldn't be in school. Um, he at that time had said until January. Um, so we re-entered a school year in distance learning. We kind of rebranded, did some professional learning as a faculty. Um, really great professional learning to kind of help us with our approach. How do we take our values and philosophy and beliefs around teaching and learning and apply them in this kind of context? We were lucky that in October, uh, we brought our fifth, eighth, 11th and 12th graders back on campus. Um, but that was just by, again, the government of Kenya, what they allowed. And January, we welcomed everyone back on campus. We've had a few stragglers here and there, um, but uh, right now we're at, I don't know how many weeks it is, maybe eight weeks or so that we've been with everyone back on campus, which has right. been really lovely. Yeah. And, and you're in a new, uh, new building uh, at this yeah. point. Last year, listeners, when I was there, the new middle school building was under construction and now uh, you've moved into a new building. So that certainly must, must, be, uh, uh, must be adding to the excitement of, of being back on campus for everybody. Yeah. I mean, wasn't enough going on. We thought, why not move into a new building at the same time as welcoming <laughs> students back on campus? No, it's actually been fantastic. This yeah. is a, we, it was a purpose-built based on, you know, we were told to dream big and we did, and we have this gorgeous building that's really been amazing to support our teaching and learning goals. And it also is very COVID compliant, actually. Yeah, so, well, that's, yeah, we're very uh, lucky to be in a new building. Oh, that's fantastic. Now, as far as COVID in Kenya in general, um, obviously, mm -hmm. you know, I talked to Tim Stewart last fall, and it's always interesting for international schools because you are, uh, you're often getting the news from the United States or from Canada and from overseas, but you really are, uh, under the laws and, and the governance of the, the country of Kenya, of course. And so um, just can you highlight for us a little bit about just your experience over the last year? Uh, and of course, we're not, we're not finished with COVID. We know that. But uh, I think a lot of people are feeling somewhat optimistic with the rollout of vaccines, et cetera. Um, but, but walk us through a little bit about just, just how that's been for you in terms of the, the interface with the government and, how we, and, and not to comment on the government and how they've handled it, but just give us a sense of maybe some of the things that they did that you thought were very effective or um, things that you think were, were very efficient in how they handled this situation. Yeah. So one of the things that was really helpful and powerful was that early days, the president immediately put in a curfew. It was a pretty strict curfew. I can't remember all the iterations of where, you know, now sure. it's a little bit later, um, but it was earlier. I think it might've even been like 6 or 7 p.m. Wow. Uh, curfew and, and until about six in the morning or something like that. Um, so there was a curfew, restaurants and bars were closed. Um, there was, you know, masking was required, uh, physical distancing required. Um, all churches and places of worship were closed, which was a really big deal, especially mm -hmm. with funerals, weddings, and, and just Sunday worship for right. um, a, being a Christian country. Right. Um, but so, uh, you know, like anywhere in the world, there's always been, you know, commentary about under under reporting mm -hmm. um, or just under not testing to the capacity of what might be recommended. Right. Um, but, you know, the, the president the Minister of Health, the Minister of Education, they've regularly gotten out to communicate with the public and share updates and um, really looked at this social responsibility aspect, mm -hmm. really urging we need to look out for our brothers and sisters mm -hmm. um, and take care of them. It's been really interesting here. 
one of the aspects of what we've seen in COVID here, especially at least early days, was that um, a lot of asymptomatic cases. And mm -hmm. so it made it almost scarier in some ways because you don't know how, how am I going to respond? Am right. I going to be, or am I a carrier? Am I possibly getting someone else sick? Mm -hmm. But as a family, I'll say, and as a school, we've been really lucky to create very safe environments. I mean, we, we feel like we can operate very safely in, in Nairobi. Yeah. Um, there's definitely a lot of pockets just like everywhere where some of those things you get further afield might be, uh, that the masking might not be as strong. Right. Um, but yeah, I think uh, right now it's also been summer recently. So where the rest of the world has maybe been locking down in the Northern hemisphere, mm -hmm. been pretty good here. I think of late, and again, I'm not always as up to date on the most recent statistics, but I think that there is starting to have a little bit of a climb again. Yeah. The very good news is that I think it was yesterday that vaccines arrived in Kenya. So that was oh, a really, okay. we'll see how the rollout happens, but yeah, they were, were much behind. Mm -hmm. I think some of the embassies might have access to vaccines, but right. um, not us here. Well, well, hope, hopefully uh, you, you are just barely in the Southern hemisphere. I kind of feel like it's always summer. I was there last, you know, whenever I've been there, it always, it always feels like summer when you're there, but, uh, but yes, you're, exactly. you're hopefully uh, fingers crossed that things going forward, um, like for all of us around the world that yeah. we can see, uh, I think there's a little light at the end of the tunnel, but it may be still a distance away, but at least we can, we can hopefully see the light. Okay. So you recently completed your doctoral studies in, as I mentioned in the intro in justice, equity, and cultural competence in international education. Um, obviously that's a very timely topic. Um, but one you likely chose, of course, before 2020. So obviously the relevance of that topic became heightened uh, in the last year. So I have two questions for you, and we'll kind of explore this a little bit. Um, what specifically led you to that topic? And two, uh, what did you find? Um, so originally my topic, one, I love to nerd out about like, um, psychological safety and its impact on organizational learning. So that was my original topic. Okay. Felt really comfortable. Loved that, you know, felt I had read a lot in that area. And then it was, um, it was a few years ago, it was about three years ago, I think it was that, um, I was working with um, Graham Pullman, actually, who was like, you need to change your topic. <laughs> your <laughs> problem of practice at ISK is actually more in this realm. Because um, I, I think it was about three or four years ago that uh, we started exploring at ISK. We created a diversity working group. We had some questions and wanted to explore and dive into looking at how are we, uh, we had four different domains. One of them was how are we um, how is our curriculum preparing students to be global citizens? Mm -hmm. And in what ways is it culturally relevant pedagogy at play? How are we selecting our resources and so on? A second theme was around um, how are we nurturing and growing cultural competence amongst our communities? Right. A third area was, um, and how are we supporting our diverse community? You know, not just saying, check, we have diversity, but like, how are we actually supporting that diversity, especially amongst our students? And then the fourth area was, and what does our staffing look like? In what ways does our staffing mirror mm -hmm. our student population and, and is it appropriately diverse? Yeah. Um, so uh, my director asked if me and one of my colleagues would co-lead that diversity working group. And so um, I, it was work that I was really excited to dive into. And it was very, you know, early days, it was tense. There was yeah. people with strong opinions. Um, mm -hmm. We were doing a real tough look and, and, and looking at, in different parts of our programming, our staffing, our everything that we were doing. Um, so it was hard work. Um, 
So then again, coming back to that conversation, I was consulting with Fran around psychological safety. She was like, why are you talking to me about this? You need to be talking about, um, about diversity, equity, and inclusion work. And so um, I did change topics. I'm really glad I did. Um, I, it was a risk. Uh, if, if you ever, it's very humbling to go back and get your doctorate <laughs> and feel like a complete novice about how to research and write academically. Um, and in particular for me, go, um, changing my topic to this, I, I, was, I didn't feel like I was as well-read as I should be at mm. that point. So I really felt like I was out of my league in that area. But um, I did, as, as you do when you're doing your doctorate, you read everything you can get your hands on and um, read a lot and really enjoyed it. So it's something that I've cared a lot about, both um, in my own personal practice, as well as it was something that I was working on, you know, to support ISK's growth and development. Mm -hmm. um, and so as I was further refining my research questions and what I wanted to specifically explore during my doctoral studies, um, it really was working on a couple of assumptions. One is that we make a lot of assumptions about international educators. Um, I think we often think, oh, they live internationally, they must be culturally competent. And I think the reality is I, I could very much keep myself in just a little bubble here. Yeah. I could very much um, just interact with people who look like me, speak like me, think like me, um, just like I could if I was in any community in the world. Right. Um, and it takes work and it takes um, intention to, to whenever you want to break out of that, that kind of mold. Um, I think a second uh, assumption was just this idea. That I think that it's very common in or a challenge in international schools is if you're really trying to teach an international curriculum, um, then especially if you happen to have a, a more American, you know, what we follow the U.S. standards, for example, yeah. um, it, when we highlight issues, for example, like Black Lives Matter, oh, that's just an American problem, you know, and actually it's really not. Um, it is a global, there are global trends that we're um, seeing in activism and, and happening with that. But, um, you know, talking about things like race and racism is not just an American problem, right? right? Um, and so uh, my, my, my assumption going into the research was that leaders matter, <laughs> um, that what a leader focuses on matters, mm -hmm. and leaders who make time for cultural competence and nurturing that and engaging in that in their communities can really impact the, um, the work that a school does. Yeah. And so I, I was specifically wanted to explore that with heads of school. Mm -hmm. So we, we, I think, instinctively know that leadership matters uh, and leadership makes a difference. But um, let me ask you why? Why does leadership make such a difference? What, what did you find? Like, what was the specifics around that? So I think um, the couple of things that I was really interested in looking at is, I, I, or some of the things that I also found, well, how we model uh, cultural competence okay. and inclusive behaviors. Um, you know, how are we prioritizing? And it was super interesting. Some of my participants in my study talked about, you know, I'm the head of the school and I, and I got my doctoral studies in this and yet I'm still not prioritizing it. Isn't that, you know, I'm still having a hard time prioritizing. It never seems to rise to the top of, right. you know, if you're trying to have one, two or three areas of focus as a school each year. Mm -hmm. um, I, I did specifically look at things like social justice leadership in terms of like what I, my construct that I study, um, social justice leadership, cultural competent leadership, inclusive leadership, and those are some of the questions that I was exploring with the heads of school when we were doing our interviews and what ways have you demonstrated this? Because that's also going to um, show what you value. Mm -hmm. It's how you choose to spend your time. It's the lens when you come into spaces and meetings and conversations and learning together mm -hmm. um, that you'll bring to the table. 
It, it, it is interesting when you talk about living in a bubble and, and for listeners who aren't familiar with international schools often, not, not always, but, but often international schools have designated areas or compounds where, where teachers live. And so you really can live in the teacher bubble. You really can, you know, go to work every day and, and maybe choose to not spend a lot of time intermingling with the culture within which you're actually living. Uh, and, and so you really do, even when you're working overseas, in my small experience of, of working with schools overseas, you really do have to kind of force yourself to, um, you know, obviously in certain countries, you have to be safe and you have to be wise about what you do. But at the same time, it's you really do have to force yourself to, 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 to get out there and really experience the culture so that you, you get the full depth and breadth of, of that experience. Uh, last week, I opened the podcast with uh, the topic of introspection illusion, which is a, a term psychologist Emily Pronin uses to describe the fact that we're not always the best judge of ourselves. We, we have these blind spots, if, if you will. So, um, and one of the reasons we have these blind spots is because of, because we all have certain biases, right? So how do we become aware when it comes to say cultural equity or racial bias, how, how do we become more aware uh, of our biases and, and how do we confront them? What's, what's the way that we confront those uh, biases, especially in an international setting? This one's a real hard one. Um, I, Cause our own hidden bias, especially if it's a hidden bias that right. we're not really even aware of, it's really hard to even, how do you put up a mirror to see something that you don't wanna see or that you are having a hard time seeing about yourself? Right. Um, I think one of the keys is really that you do, I, I, I believe strongly in regular reflection. I think you need to reading and really putting that critical eye to yourself is really important. Um, I thought like in this particular area, I know that one of the, the books I read early on was um, uh, White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. It's a really good one. And it's actually a great introduction because that is a very common first response that we see when people um, are trying to examine self and possible hidden biases is we do sometimes get defensive. Well, no, I'm, I'm not racist. I, you know, especially if we want to define it in binary terms between racist, not racist, right. instead of really looking at there's a spectrum, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think, you know, having that open heart to really want to do some self exploration and reading and learning and, and, and really taking that time to do kind of a self audit. Mm -hmm. I think of, um, do you know the Jahari window? No. Um, have you ever heard of the Jahari? So the Jahari window is like what's known to yourself, what's known to others, unknown to yourself and unknown to others. And it talks about the blind spot being what others know about you that you don't know about yourself. Mm. Um, and we talk about that a lot, um, me and a couple of my colleagues. How do we help raise our awareness about our blind spots, about right. that place that others can see in me that I don't see in myself? Right. And in, in particular, those things that might be not as flattering or desirable. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think uh, one of the things I think also I really value is having um, accountability thinking partnerships, people yeah. who will share critical feedback with me um, and or just continue to share new ideas and push my thinking and new perspectives. So yeah. I think that that idea that we're open to hearing a different perspective and we're not fixed where in our where we are. Yeah, is really important. It, you know, the the charge of of racist is is, you know, top one or two in terms of horrific charges that can be, you know, leveled against anyone. And yet we, 
we tend, we continue to take things so personally. And I think that that, you know, sounds to me like one of the keys is to understand that if you haven't been discriminatory and if you know that you haven't acted willfully in, in, in a way that has been derogatory towards someone else, then the work around anti-racism is more about systems and structures and, and more about, um, you know, the way that systems operate within, within our organizations. And it isn't personal. It isn't that you've, and I remember my conversation with Anthony Muhammad, you know, saying to me like, you know, you didn't do it. So why are you taking it so personally? Right. He wasn't saying that at me, but he was just saying that, you know, you, you weren't, being discriminatory toward people. So why are you taking it so personally? And it's really hard to get people past that, that level of emotion, isn't it? Like you, you were talking earlier about some of the conversations you had and, and how they could be very intense and people get very defensive about it. So I don't know what the answer is for how we confront that, but, or how we, we diffuse that intensity in that conversation, but it's something that we definitely need to address, don't we? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, sometimes it's even the more subtle microaggressions, though, that can be the most harmful. Mm -hmm. My intention is not to be um, harmful or racist, for example, but I might have an impact. I might have, you know, again, with that blind spot or, you know, yeah. part of my learning and unlearning about, you know, history and systems and, and everything, right. I, I might have done something or said something that is has a negative impact. Mm -hmm. And so I still have a responsibility to fix that. And of course, yeah. Yeah, some of these things uh, have not happened willfully. They've just happened through conditioning, just through the systems that we've yeah. grown up in. And, and I think that Absolutely. just not taking it so personally uh, in most cases is, I, th I think, part of the answer for how, how we, we move forward on that. Uh, culturally, obviously, uh, one of the big parts of the work is culturally relevant and responsive pedagogy. And uh, that's the cornerstone of what's necessary in terms of the transformations within the schools. So what does that from your perspective generally look like? How do we, how do we get there in an international school setting? Um, so I actually just recently held a workshop on this because I was, um, it's, this is one of the, like, the million dollar questions. When you have a really diverse classroom, how do you do this in, in an international school setting? How do you help to implement culturally relevant pedagogy? Um, I think first it comes with a teacher really embracing or a school system really embracing and valuing diversity in a pluralistic society. And that, that's something that we think is a really adds richness to us. And, um, and I guess together with that, then how do we empower students? So empowering students is one of the first priorities um, making connections to our students' diverse cultural backgrounds. It doesn't mean that we can be experts on every student that, you know, the cultural backgrounds of every student in our classroom. But what it can help us with is um, if we understand the cultural values of a particular, you know, different, different um, nationalities or cultural uh, cultures that are represented in our classroom, we can then also understand what's coming out and what in the behaviors or the, the, the learning actions that we're seeing from our students. So I can then be responsive to that. Um, culturally responsive pedagogy looks like um, that we're trying to build cultural competence so that um, not only are you understanding yourself, but you're also understanding that of your classmates and we're, we're curious about it and we want to learn more and we want to have an accepting and open heart around that. Um, it also means that we're promoting um, students to engage in dis like look at power dynamics, um, promoting social justice, mm -hmm. um, looking at marginalized groups, 
how do we or uh, how do we help support uh, when we see discrimination at play? Um, I think it's a big part of culturally relevant pedagogy is around nurturing and developing personal relationships with students and really helping our students to feel seen and valued for who they are. Mm -hmm. um, and also helping to share multiple perspectives. So as we're considering our resources, do we have biased resources? Do we have representation in our resources? Whose perspective is being told? Um, and so those are things that we can do. Um, you know, it doesn't mean that I'm going to hit if I have 15 different nationalities or you know, cultural backgrounds in my classroom that I'm gonna hit representation on every single student, but I'm gonna be really mindful that I'm not only showing a North American white girl in all of my um, picture books or my story problems for math or otherwise. Right. It also means that maybe I'll consider, okay, I'm in my science class, I'm gonna look at using local data in this, our host country context. Or maybe it means in my math class, when I share, uh, we're working on fractions, I might share a social justice problem that's relevant um, in some other random part of the world that maybe I know that some of my students connect with if I have a large population from that area. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that we've really focused on in our middle school here, I can speak about my realm of influence and how we've tried to start sure. looking at that. Um, a couple things. One is we've done a major overhaul of our humanities program in the last couple of years. And actually that's been really exciting, a lot of work, but really exciting <laughs> where we blend social studies and English language arts together. And it's really an integrated blended approach, um, looking at a, helping to support students develop a conceptual understanding amongst different themes. Um, and instead of focusing on World War II and World War I and all you know different historical specifics, uh, we're looking at making connections. So an example, um, the eighth grade in quarter two did the transatlantic slaves trade. So they looked mm -hmm. at racism over time. They made parallels to today and Black Lives Matter. And then as the students were doing a project, um, not focusing on the product of that project, but it was actually doing research in, um, they, you know, they were funneled into an area, you know, uh, a focus area for the project that they had choice embedded within that. What are you curious to learn more about and making those connections from history to today um, and kind of taking that social justice approach with it as well. We, another thing that we've done, so there's a couple things that have kind of collided this year that have been really exciting to see also our kids feeling truly empowered, both to feel like they can be themselves and, 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 and advocate for themselves, but also raising their awareness um, uh, for themselves and others. Mm -hmm. We also implemented a social justice advisory program this year. So we have our advisory program that has a multiple goals, but one day a week, we're also really trying to make sure that we have time to um, take a social justice approach with our students. So for example, in the first semester, we focused on race and racism. This semester, it started off with the light topic of sexism. Um, so, but our kids are, and the, our students are developing those lessons for yeah. their classmates. We have a social justice club, so it's really powerful. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're um, well, I, I know the students would, you know, sometimes putting it in the hands of the students, right, to confront these, like you say, these, these, fluffy topics of racism and sexism, they're yeah. really digging into it. Um, you know, it, it, it is interesting to think about for me when I, when I, you know, the classrooms I've been in, the schools I've been in, they are so culturally, culturally diverse that I wonder sometimes, and I want to know your perspective on this. I think sometimes we, we on the one hand need to be actively uh, creating and curating resources that are culturally diverse and, and different perspectives. But as you say, we can't know and be an expert on on the background of every student. So, is there also a place for 
that opportunity for students to make meaning and recognize uh, that this may be, you know, culturally different. Not that it, again, we, we do what we can to create cultural diversity within resources and experiences and all of that, but, it, but is there the opportunity for us to say, okay, let's help us understand from your perspective, how you see this particular issue and allow students to make meaning uh, through their own cultural lens, which obviously builds the cultural capacity within the classroom, helps the teacher understand different cultures as well. So it's sort of, rather than only coming from teacher to students and saying, I'm creating a culturally diverse learning environment, which we will do, could it come in the other direction too, where the students are helping us? And have you seen some examples of that? That's just an idea I want to throw to you and see what your thoughts are on that. Absolutely. Um, well, I think that's also just a huge educational philosophical thing, right? A teacher-centered classroom where the teacher is the imparter of knowledge versus a student-centered classroom where the teacher is facilitating meaningful conversations. What can, you know, we want our kids to be making connections. So as we're exploring um, you know, whatever the topic might be, the transatlantic slave trade, mm -hmm. you know, which is kind of really distant in a lot, a lot of 13 year old minds, but they can certainly make connections to today and what they're seeing, um, whether it's in their home country or in um, the last place that they lived or whatever around, like, for example, race, racism, Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. um, but the more that you give students voice and you, I think, as the teachers act as the facilitator and creating opportunities for rich conversation where we are working on our listening skills and our empathy skills. And also we're working on our perspective taking. Mm -hmm. um, I think that can be really powerful. Yeah. Just that yeah. level of awareness to me seems to already create a different kind of context, creating that collective awareness um, because yeah. it is, you know, like you say, it, it'd be almost impossible to curate resources that would account for every culture that's represented uh, in the school. And, and, and so speaking of that, I want to translate, you mentioned this earlier, and I want to come back to this issue around faculty, because international schools, as you know, uh, better than I know, present this obvious dichotomy. Okay, so the student populations are incredibly diverse. I mean, I think about many of the schools I've worked with, have somewhere between 60 and 100 different cultures represented in the school. Sometimes just one student, sometimes a handful, and sometimes a large student population. But we're talking 60, you know, when you go to, to cultural day uh, at the school, you see the diversity that exists in the school. And yet the teaching staff, um, outside mm -hmm. of any local hires, which many schools will hire locals uh, as well, but outside of any local hires, the teaching staff, the teachers, the principals, the heads of school, not very diverse. And, uh, and so is that one of the biggest challenges that international schools face as far as staffing is concerned? And how do we, how do we authentically address that situation uh, in schools? How do, we, how do we start changing the diversity amongst the, the faculty? Um, yeah, so it's interesting because right before I uh, was about a month or so before I was going to defend my dissertation, there were a couple articles that came out from um, teachers of color in the international world who kind of put some charges out there that said, you know, there's more of us than you think. <laughs> um, you know, it's and really charged international schools around some of the practices that maybe weren't weren't great practices. Mm -hmm. Um, in my research, that was something that was interesting. That was one that some talked about as a, a, a success and some talked about as a big challenge. Um, the ones who talked about it as an a success of really trying to nurture and look at developing a diverse faculty had some really great strategies that they used. So um, 
a couple of them talked about the fact that at the beginning of the year, they really, they do an audit of their faculty. Who do I have amongst my faculty? Um, looking at different kinds of dynamics and breakdowns, gender breakdowns, age, um, nationality, ethnic and race issues uh, or uh, uh, identifiers. Um, and then also looking at teaching skills. Who, who do I have? Like what, what, what are the contributions that each person brings based on our school's um, values and vision and direction that we're going? Mm -hmm. And then where are the gaps? So if I have X, Y, and Z teachers leaving, what are the opportunities and what are the gaps that I have? What do I need? So doing almost this, like creating a profile before um, even going out to do recruiting. So, okay, I have a pretty old team here in this grade level. I, I really could use some youth and some fresh young ideas or, um, you know, looking at um, different asset qualifications that might really enrich and open up perspectives and, and create some diversity on the team. Um, and then going into um, recruitment with that in mind. I know at ISK, we've also we've looked at where are we looking and how do we make sure that every time we are recruiting, we have a number of diverse candidates so that we're not just narrowing and chasing a single candidate and so that we're not just put having our maybe hidden biases. Our natural instinct is in, in life and as, even as educators or, or um, administrators, I, I think that we have to work really hard. I think we naturally are like magnetic to people that are like us, people that look like me, speak like me, or have experiences like me, mm -hmm. um, that's going to probably, you know, we're going to be attracted to that. And so it does take work and intention to say, actually, I really want to open up to be, to, to learn about someone who maybe isn't like me, comes from a different background, but maybe they could really add some richness to, mm -hmm. to this place. Yeah. I think you, I think, you hit the nail on the head there. It's just, again, we talked earlier about awareness and just taking a deeper dive into the diversity of your, and, and, and look, we're not, we're not talking about tokenism here. We're talking about, yeah. you know, we're talking about, you know, that, that we can create uh, culturally diverse uh, faculties and, and not, not just avoid there's, there's no, uh, you know, the situation where you're, you're recruiting less than just to make sure certain cultures are represented, you actually are enhancing the educational experience for the students because of that diversity. So I just want people to be clear that, you know, we're not talking about just checklists and, but I think it's really smart to take a deep dive and say, what is the representation here in our school? And do we represent even to some degree, our student population, because I'm sure the students see it. Have you, have, have students ever, in your conversation, I know I'm throwing you a curveball here, but have have students has that ever come up with students where in in the in all of the conversations you've had in the school about cultural diversity amongst the students, have they ever said, "But our teachers aren't very diverse"? Has that ever come up in conversation? Yes, it has. <laughs> um, definitely. <Okay>. All right. <laughs> yeah. In fact, um, we have um, we had a group of students, a student equity committee that developed in the high school, and you want to talk about. The world is in good hands because this is a real impressive group of students. Mm -hmm. um, they actually were sharing with us some of their feedback about both the curriculum, about our staffing, um, asking if they could have a role in the recruitment process. So we've actually done some forward thinking for next year as well about how can we sometimes in international schools, um, recruitment can be really fast. It can happen in a short time. So how can we make sure that we have multiple layers to get mm -hmm. multiple perspectives in? So it's not just me and my potential ideas around someone being a fit or not, but I'm also having lots of other eyes and perspectives on that, but also getting student voice in. That's mm -hmm. so important. And right. uh, I think we found a pretty good way to do that for next year. So we're really excited to roll okay. out 
bringing students into that process. But yeah, I think that does matter and it makes a difference to students. They've commented on that. Yeah. I'm not surprised that they, they have commented on that because that I could see that for students because of hearing so much around the world about the importance of cultural diversity and then right in front of them. Um, and again, that's not to disparage the people that are, that are, that are there and that are working hard in all of the international schools. It's just a fact that the school, the, the, the staff, the faculty, not, not very diverse. And I can see long-term that being something that really has to be, and, and maybe in the short term that can be reconciled, but certainly in the long term, something to, uh, nope. to address. Go ahead. One of the things that we, um, the, one of the things that we have been doing over the last several years, so that at, at bare minimum, no matter what the um, identifiers of any of our candidates um, that we're talking to potentially to join ISK um, have, we also, we want to make sure that bare minimum, everyone is a culturally competent educator at, to some extent that mm-hmm. they're, they are working to grow as uh, in their cultural competence. They are paying attention to um, how they're teaching, what, why, and what they're teaching. And so we've actually added some questions into our, um, and every year we're reviewing them. We've added some questions into our interview protocol. Mm-hmm. So um, even if we do have what might look like a stereotypical white North American male teacher joining our, our faculty, that doesn't mean that he's, you know, <laughs> he's all bad, <laughs> right, right. not all white, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. hopefully, you know, we've also asked them some critical and intensive questions around in what ways they do pay attention to the students in the room and they help their students feel fully seen and that they are honoring the diversity and, and mm. considering that in, in, in their teaching pedagogy as well. Sure. Um, and so actually, you know, we, we have some teachers that have brought on board that, that might not meet some of the, um, what we might talk about, like as the superficial identifiers around um, diversity, but are actually these social justice warriors just doing some phenomenal work that students mm-hmm. feel like I have an ally there. Or I have someone who right. is going to broaden my mind and, and teach me something. Yeah. It, it's, it's such a, such a simple strategy to ask the question right in the interview um a parallel to that i often work when i work with schools people say well tom when we develop these assessment policies how do we make sure uh that new new faculty coming in will ask the question ask them about their assessment practices ask them about how they grade ask them about how they give feedback and and the same parallel here with with cultural competence is you know ask the questions about the work they've done in the past or the things they're working on now and, and what they recognize in themselves and, and, and to find out, because if that is the mission of the school, you have to know that that person's going to be a good, good fit for you. And I want to pivot to this thought thoughts around, or this idea of attrition and faculty in international schools, because um, a, a fairly ubiquitous issue that international schools deal with is attrition. It seems like every school that I work with, um, is always dealing with a, you know, a, a pretty significant number of teacher turnover in the school. It's, it's not always a massive number, but it's enough to notice and it's enough to, to have to account for. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm wondering from your perspective, you know, how, how do you create, you know, your, your principal and, and, and in a middle school. And so how do you create continuity? How do you create sort of uh, seamlessness with which you're developing the the approach to education in the middle school when when schools see this turnover constantly like what is the strategy how do how do, how should leaders go about creating that kind of continuity when they see because this isn't just an international school issue this this is something that applies to a lot of schools in north america and you know around the world but but what how do we create continuity when you have such high staff turnover 
Um, well, so one of the things we are really lucky here, we actually have a lower turnover than I think a lot of schools. Um, it's for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's the makeup of your overseas hires versus your local hires. Okay. Um, and so, and there's of course pros and cons to turnover. Sometimes turnover, it brings in great fresh new ideas and perspectives that helps us to grow mm -hmm. um, in those just right spaces. But it also, you're right, um, constantly having to work on how do we create stability and alignment as we approach student learning. I think uh, there's a couple of things. I think, you, I think in any school, you have to every single year, there's certain things as a matter of practice you're going to have to do every year to make sure that we are all checking in. Is this still what we believe? What do we believe? How are we approaching students? Where do we stand? You know, every time that we come up to um, report cards, for example, even if we had very little turnover, we take time as a faculty to make sure we're reviewing what is the purpose of the report card? Mm -hmm. How do we want to philosophically approach our comments? We want them to be strength-based. Mm -hmm. We certainly don't want to deprive students of quality feedback in the report card comment or um, constructive feedback to grow and improve. But mm -hmm. we also want to see that child from, through a strength-based lens. So right. that's just one example of something that every year we need to make time for that. Um, right now, we're doing some really exciting work with some values work um, that Greg James is leading out um, yeah. in our community, where we're all trying to come together um, around what are the implicit values of this community and what are the beliefs that we have associated with that with learning. And I, I'm really excited about where this work will go because it'll really even further ground us so that when we do have bring new people on board, um, that hopefully if we are doing things right. Um, that we are constantly referring back to, well, at ISK, we value mm -hmm. equity and justice. And so in what ways is this decision that we're doing or these actions that we're taking in conflict, or are they supporting that we really do value that? Mm -hmm. um, and we can go through any of the values that we might um, ultimately land on as a community. Um, we do the same thing at the beginning of the year, every year in orientation. So I think one thing that might, I don't know what this looks like in American school. I've never worked as an adult in an American school, um, only international school. Okay. But I know every year we take time onboarding our new teachers. And then we mm -hmm. also have an orientation for all of our faculty, um, new and returning. And there are certain things that we do every year. We do review what do we believe about how we work with children? What is our responsibility in that and what the ways that we talk to them around mm -hmm. restorative practices rather than punitive as an example? Yeah. Um, so I think it, that's just a really important piece when you're in a transient community. So, so important to have those values and fundamentals in place because as we talked earlier, uh, you can use that as a foundation in recruiting too, can't you? Because this is, yeah. this is how you'll know what your school stands for and therefore exactly. it's easier to find uh, faculty that fit that mission, fit those values, um, fit the approach that you're taking uh, with schools. Um, yeah. So I wanna continue this thread of, of international. I don't think I knew that about you. I don't think I knew that you had never worked in, uh, in an American school. I did not. I actually worked, um, I worked as a substitute teacher in an American school okay. and I worked as a paraprofessional in special education um, okay. while I was getting my degree. My okay. mom was a career educator in public schools in the United States, but okay. I never okay. had a teaching job in the US. And so where was the first post? Where, where, did, you, where did you go to first? My first teaching post yeah. was Egypt. Egypt, that's and what then, I thought. Okay, I knew you'd worked in Egypt. India. I didn't realize that was your yeah. first. So Egypt and then yeah. India and now in and Kenya. And now Kenya. Okay. So that's been over the last 18 years, yeah. Wow. 
I'm not surprised you, uh, just listeners, just for your information, I'm not surprised that ISK doesn't have very high turnover. First of all, Kenya is a, an incredible country. It's uh, just a, the two times I've been there, it's just blown me away in terms of uh, just loved everything about it. And two, ISK is an incredible campus. It's an absolutely gorgeous campus. Um, I don't think I'd leave either if I if I had a chance uh, to work there. Um, okay, so let's stay on this thread of international education as a professional choice. You have obviously this has been the entirety of your teaching career, and um, and obviously there is a lot to love about overseas work, and and I've seen firsthand just the the enormous opportunities that come in front of you as you as you work overseas. Um, you know, I've, I've seen the social media posts about all the travel, the Facebook posts, and uh, those posts are epic about places that people go and things they experience. But working overseas is not perfect, right? So for listeners out there who are intrigued by this prospect, some people listening might be thinking, hmm, you know, this sounds really glamorous teaching overseas. And obviously the, the country you go to and the school you go to is going to make the biggest difference in terms of what your experience is. But what are some of the not so positive aspects that people at least need to be aware of um, if or when they begin their international journey? It's not perfect. We know that. So what are some things they have to be prepared for? Um, well, so one of the things I do, I do think um, people being realistic with themselves and their dispositions and their personal needs is really important before embarking on international um, living because I think you have to have a high tolerance for frustration <laughs> um, because when you, depending, again, there's a lot of different countries. Um, I've happened to live in more developing countries as I've been working overseas and not as developed. And so of course that brings a whole different slew of challenges. Um, maybe things going slower than we, we might be used to or hoping for, or just working differently. Mm -hmm. um, countries that we've lived in have been former British colonies. So there's a lot of for being an American, <laughs> just even getting used to the British lingo and systems or, you know, here in Kenya, we drive on the, the opposite side of the road than the United States. Yeah. Um, so, you know, having that open openness to like, actually that's a fun adventure and not a frustrating or annoying thing. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I, I think that that would be one of the biggest things being really flexible and adaptable is really important. I think the other part is um, it is hard being far from home and family, especially when there's tough moments. So you can't always get home um, for those tough moments in particular. You know, I didn't travel home last summer. That was really hard to not see my family because mm -hmm. um, that's, we count on that and embracing that every summer. Right. Um, and then, like, I think I said earlier, like everywhere, I think just really ensuring that, you know, you could live in a bubble and it's very, it's actually easier to live in a bubble than not. And so um, if someone's coming overseas, hoping to really integrate. And again, I think I have never lived in Europe. I've never lived in East Asia. So I, different experiences, of course, for different places, but right. places that I've happened to live, I do live in a compound here and I did in Delhi as well. Right. Um, and so it takes that extra effort on my part to make sure that then, you know, I am exploring and integrating and, and whatnot. Yeah. I think that's an important aspect. You see people, uh, you're not just working overseas, you're raising your family overseas. And that has an yeah. impact on grandparents. It has an impact on your kids. And in many ways, a, a very positive impact on the kids that that grow up overseas. But there's also that um, you know, detachment from their own country, you know, the what, what they call third culture kids, right, who are American citizens who who've rarely spent much time in the United States or or Canada or any country like that. So there are some definitely, definitely tough, tough parts uh, that you see and, and having to be, you know, eyes wide open and be 
be prepared for that. So let's finish on this one. Last question. What's the best part about working overseas? Um, well, so I, I feel like it's fairly obvious, but maybe it's not <laughs> for everyone. Um, so I love exploring new places and cultures. I mean, and, and also just um, constantly, it forces you into having a learner mindset around life and growing and expanding um, my worldview. You know, there's not only one right way to live. As I've lived in these three very diverse countries and even more before, I was in Peace Corps before that, mm -hmm. um, really seeing that um, my little way of growing up in Plymouth, New Hampshire, um, isn't the only way, you know, that, that was one kind of norm that I grew up with, but now I've seen all these other realities, which has been so powerful and amazing. Um, and again, raising a family has been really powerful as well to see how my girls see the world and they, you know, love spicy food. They, when they learned, started eating food, they were in India <laughs> and yeah. so they spicy food, like there's no food unless it's spicy food. Yeah. Um, and then finally, I think I would say the professional growth. I think one of the things that's really rich um, is that, you know, I have had the opportunity to work in multiple schools. And also because of that turnover, I've met, you know, hundreds of educators that have, you know, made me a better educator as I get to learn from, from them. And they bring new ideas that maybe if I was in a little bit more stagnant situation, you know, it might be a little harder to continue to expand my own thinking on things right. in the same way. Yeah. It is a, um, I said to Tim in October, I said, you know, had I known this was a thing back in the early nineties, I, I, I probably would have been so, I didn't even know these schools existed. That's how naive I was to the international school world. And certainly in recent years, the international school world has expanded. Uh, I think yeah. in the early nineties, it wasn't as robust as it is now, but, right. uh, but certainly uh, the advantages, you know, part of the challenge for, for North Americans in traveling is it, it costs a lot of money to get to the other side of the world. Uh, so sure when does. you're working on the other side of the world, you know, as, as we might fly from Seattle to Dallas or, or say Boston to Los Angeles, you can be in the Middle East, you can be in, in, uh, you know, different parts of Europe. Uh, it's a totally different experience. And obviously the travel options uh, for sure are, are, are wonderful. So Alexa, this has been great. Um, I really, really appreciate your perspective. We're going to finish, uh, uh, I mean, I could, I can talk about this stuff uh, for a long time for sure. And, and, I, and maybe we'll have you back to uh, update us on some of the work uh, that's been happening at the school, but we're going to finish, uh, finish up with the segment. I always call three questions. I'm going to ask you three, three lighthearted questions, <clears throat> not to put you on the spot, but just, you know, yeah, I'll put you on the spot a little bit, but, um, but just a chance for listeners to get to know Alexa a little bit on a more personal level. So um, we just kind of talked about this a little bit. So I'm going to begin with the first question and, and uh, it's, it's picking up on a theme that we just were, were mentioning, which is being overseas, of course, has afforded you some incredible travel opportunities. Um, so which city or country that you've been to turned out to be the biggest positive surprise? So you went there and you thought to yourself, I don't know how this is going to be. And you were just blown away. It was one of those things where it completely exceeded your expectations. Um, I think I would probably say India. And I think um, it was because we lived in Delhi for eight years. Um, we moved there when our twin daughters were two and we moved when they were eight, I'm oh, sorry, 10. And um, I started there as a middle school math teacher and moved into the role of assistant principal. And I think the combination of the school and the amazing learning that happened by, I, had, I was amongst giants for leaders. I was really lucky to have so many amazing leaders and educator mentors. So professionally, I grew so much. 
um, personally, it also impacted me. I think there's a lot about where a school is and the culture it's situated in and how that can also impact what teaching and learning looks like in the community. Um, India is a fascinating place. We were real nervous going there because it's, <laughs> gosh, it's big and busy and crowded and polluted. And um, we just, we actually were like starstruck with the, uh, with the magic of the place. It was a really neat place. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had a similar reaction to, to India, not knowing what to expect when I, first time I, I came there and uh, you're right, the pollution, uh, the, the, the traffic, <laughs> the intensity, it, yeah. but, but still uh, there, there is a wonderment about India that uh, is just, yeah. it is magical. It's, it's a it great is. place for sure. Mm -hmm. Okay. Second question. What's the strangest thing you've ever eaten? Um, when I was in Peace Corps, um, well, there, you just do a lot of weird things, I think, when you're in Peace Corps, <laughs> um, do and eat well, a lot of weird things. But I actually, I, maybe it's not the strangest thing, but I really did fall in love with a lot of the local cuisine. And so like, I would eat these little, dry, I mean, when I first moved there, I thought it was the grossest thing I could have ever smelled. It was just so powerful. These little um, small fish called capenta, and they fry them up in oil and salt. Um, but then also I graduated myself onto bigger fish and you eat the head and it's all crunchy as the, mm. you know, the brains and everything comes in kind of gross. But, um, and then also frying up, um, caterpillar, uh, fried caterpillars was another big one. Oh, that yeah. wasn't my favorite actually, to be honest with you. I didn't really yeah, yeah. like fried caterpillars, but no. I did yeah. try them because I believe in trying everything once. Yeah. Well, the, the, the question wasn't, what's your favorite? The question was, what's the strangest? <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, last question. What is, what is your fondest childhood memory? Oh gosh. Um, I think, you know, I was really lucky. I grew up in a small town and uh, we grew up in one of those very stereotypical small towns where you can walk to school and get the neighborhood kids that would run around. And so I think I would more talk about like that, not a specific memory, but just uh, me and my sister and our neighbors down the street, running mm. back and forth, building forts and <laughs> just having a real nice community feel. My mom was a teacher and she was friends with all these teachers. And, um, it was just, it was just kind of a fun little idyllic, innocent childhood, I think yeah. around yeah. like that, that kind of atmosphere was really nice. Yeah. There is nostalgia to that for sure. The, yeah, you yeah. don't have to lock your doors and everybody knows everybody yes. and, and that can be exactly. a good thing or a bad thing when everybody knows everybody, cause everybody knows exactly. your business. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> Uh, so one final question for you, Alexa, is a question I ask everyone I interview and uh, just a running theme through the podcast is uh, success and happiness. So uh, the question I'm asking you is the question I ask everyone, which is if a random person stopped you on the street, uh, a random person sort of came by and stopped you and asked you the question, what's your definition of success? How would you answer them? Um, so I think that uh, to define success, I would say it's when you are living wholeheartedly, when you are embracing life and all the bumps and, uh, and con making connections and living with purpose. So I do place a strong value on our social responsibility to leave the world a little bit better or happier or more joyful than when we entered it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that happens when we're following our passions when we're making connections and, and spreading love. Yeah, I love that. That social responsibility lens and leaving the world a better place than, than, we, than we found it. Um, I, I think that's a, a great place to, to finish up today. Um, Alexa, again, I, I can't thank you enough for being here. Listeners, you can follow Alexa on Twitter. 
Her Twitter handle is at Teach Schmidt, so at uh, T-E-A-C-H-S-C-H-M-I-D. Uh, uh, that's on Twitter. Now, Alexa doesn't tweet a lot, and uh, but when she does, you're going to get one of two things. You're going to get very thoughtful content from Alexa, or you're going to get some insight into what's happening at the ISK Middle School, that's for sure, or ISK in general. So so good content. She doesn't, she doesn't tweet a lot, but uh, when she does tweet, uh, it's definitely worth paying attention to. Alexa also has a blog uh, that I'm going to make sure I get this right. Um, and again, as we were talking earlier, Alexa doesn't blog as much as she would like to or, or often, but she's been a little busy with her dissertation. So we'll forgive you, Alexa. Uh, but that Thank blog you. spot is uh, learning and leading Schmidt dot wordpress.com um, is is the uh, the blog spot so learning and leading schmidt dot wordpress.com uh, is that site alexa it has been uh, great to see you great to talk with you great to catch up um, thanks for joining me today thank you tom i look forward to when you make it back to nairobi me too in assessment corner this week i want to address the topic of our lingering normative tendencies if you were to ask any group of teachers if they grade on the curve, you'll probably receive a universal resounding no. And I believe teachers when they say that they don't grade on the curve. However, what's become apparent to me in recent years is that shedding some of our traditional habits, our normative grading tendencies, is much easier said than done. Even those who have moved to a more standards-based approach to grading can, if not mindful, fall back into habits misaligned with our modern assessment paradigm. Norm referencing is specifically designed to rank learners on a bell curve. A small percentage of students performing well, most performing in the middle or the average, and a small percentage performing poorly. In order to produce a bell curve each time, assessments are designed to accentuate performance differences amongst the students. Now, if you listened to the bonus episode on standardized testing I had with Tom Gusky, and if you haven't, I really would encourage you to, to go back and listen to that. You'll remember this from the part where Tom was talking about the ACT, the SAT, and other college acceptance type assessments, right? Accentuating the difference is the key when you're norm referencing. This is where a percentage grading system has a tremendous amount of favorability because what you need when you're norming is great grade variation. So if you can drill down to a decimal place or even two decimal places, even better. Okay. So an example that is still widely used in the United States and other schools around the world, an example of norming is class rank, right? It's just how you rank in comparison to other students in your grade level. Now that's done in many schools still for both frivolous reasons, like determining valedictorian. And I, look, I'm not suggesting that the decision about valedictorians is frivolous. What I am suggesting though is you don't have to do it through class rank. You know, in the years that I spent working in high schools, uh, we never determined valedictorian by class rank, never. And, and this goes back to the early 90s. So there are other ways to do it. So it's, that's not frivolous valedictorian, but there are other ways that you can do it and other ways that you can structure it. But that's a whole different conversation. There are, however, very real consequences for schools. So it's very easy for me to be all sort of high and mighty and say down with class rank. But if you are a school, for example, in the state of Texas, you have to also wrestle with the Texas 10% law. And the, for example, the Texas 10% law states that any student who graduates among the top 10% of her high school is guaranteed admission into a public university. 
Again, I think that's more like six, ends up being more like six or 7% for the University of Texas, simply because there's many more applicants. So even if a school in Texas wants to be criterion referenced and is completely criterion referenced, they still need that rank order. Otherwise, you're disadvantaging your students, right? Or you're, you're making things convoluted. So they still have to do that. So on the other hand, criterion referencing is designed to determine if students have achieved certain learning standards or learned certain material or acquired specific skills or knowledge. That's different. Okay, assessments that measure performance against a fixed set of standards or criteria is what we're really focused on. Therefore, you don't need great grade variation. We want all students in a criterion referencing system, we want all students to reach proficiency or higher. So we would use criteria or we'd use uh, cut scores to determine each level. The crux of it is this criterion referencing system is the crux of what we do in classrooms, right? Now, the standards move to the 1990s brought about a shift, at least a shift in theory, away from norm-referenced assessments where students were compared to one another to determine performance levels to a criterion-referenced approach. Now, few teachers, if any, consciously take a normative approach to grading, but the remnants still linger. And that's the part I want to talk about, which is why this is, it's so critical that we be hyper aware of our normative tendencies that can influence how we judge student performance. And there are three main ways I think this occurs or most often happens. And I'm not saying this is prominent in your school or across a lot of schools, but it does, it does creep into some of our practices sometimes. And here are the three. The first is leaving room. The second is restricting access. And the third is curving backwards. Okay. So those are the three. Let's start with leaving room. Now, if we're not careful, the order in which we assess student performance can often influence and determine certain applicable levels. Think of it like a, a Olympic figure skating judge or gymnastics, where uh, in either of those sports, performing early in the competition can be a disadvantage as judges often leave room in order to score uh, athletes to perform later on in case someone later on later on performs a little bit better than one of the earlier athletes, the judges have some space in order to, to sort and rank the athletes. You know, giving away too much too soon can make the judge more, uh, make the judge's job more challenging since the role of the Olympic judge is actually to rank the athletes to award medals. Now, that's not the goal of classroom assessment. So if we were to take the same approach intentionally keeping scores tamped down to leave room for later demonstrations, we've completely lost the plot. Because the order in which teachers assess student performance is often random. Like when, when teachers bring assignments home or, or go through things, they, they do it in kind of a random order. So it's imperative that we not let this randomness play a role in influencing our decisions. Olympic judging is inherently normative. Classroom assessment shouldn't be. Students should be judged on the quality of the work as it's compared to the established performance criteria, period. The fact that performance was one, was one of the first or the last to be assessed or how it compares to others really should be irrelevant when determining quality. Okay, so that's leaving room. The second one is restricting access. Okay, restricting access to certain levels of performance is another normative habit that can influence a teacher's decision. Again, I don't believe this is consciously done and I don't know if it's widespread, but it's something I want you to look for, okay? It's a habit 
that's been so embedded in our collective assessment mindset that it is really difficult to shake in some places. We've been conditioned and and continue to perpetuate this erroneous thought that too many high achievers means there's a problem. It means, you know, great inflation or it's not rigorous enough, etc. Like all this talk in society about great inflation for me is often the the fact that society's using a normative mindset to examine criterion referenced results. And I think that's where the problem sometimes comes in. The bell curve is about random distribution. Okay, let's let's make sure we're clear on that. That if I were to walk onto the street and stop a hundred people and measure their height, I would get a bell curve, a bell curve distribution of results. I'd have some tall people, some very short people, and most people somewhere in the middle. Okay? The bell curve kind of balloons in the middle. This mindset completely ignores the fact that teaching is neither random or haphazard. Everything we do in teaching is intentional. So why in the world would we expect, with that level of intentionality, still expect a bell curve distribution of results? It doesn't make any sense, especially in a criterion referencing system, right? So this idea of having too many A's or too many fours or too many exemplaries, like that, it's, it's just a completely, as I said, erroneous thought. So imagine this scenario where two-thirds of your class actually achieve at the highest level. Call it a four, call it exemplary, call it call it whatever you want, okay? They achieve at that high level of performance, and therefore, they have all earned an A or a four, an exemplary for the semester of the grading period. The question is, would you share that publicly with your colleagues? Well, yes, some of you would. You wouldn't care. But there are many who wouldn't. And they wouldn't because... They're fearful of the predictable criticism that would likely be sent their way, that the class was too easy, wasn't rigorous enough, or it was dumbed down. We want all students to succeed at the highest level, or so we say in our mission statements. But when they do, our default is that there's a problem. We're more likely to think there's a problem. So again, applying a normative construct to a criterion referencing system is where we get into trouble when, when we're analyzing the results of any assessment. Thinking that there are too many or too few of any level does not square with the idea of criterion referencing, okay, or a standards-based learning environment. Once performance criteria has been established, how students perform compared to that criteria is all that matters, okay? So we got leave room, restricting access, and the third one is curving backwards, okay? So now imagine a different scenario. We've got a scenario where a high school English language arts teacher's ninth grade students have just submitted their first argumentative essays. The teacher was really effective in co-constructing criteria with the class and was thorough in using exemplars to contextualize the criteria and was quite methodical about providing exceptional feedback on the first drafts of the papers. Okay, so that was all done instructionally. So now that the final papers have been collected, it's time for the teacher to score them. And she's going to score them using a four-point holistic rubric. And the teacher begins to examine the quality of the writing and first starts with Jeremy. So Jeremy submits an exceptional piece of writing that his teacher determined was unquestionably a four or an exemplary or at that top level of the rubric, okay? So later on, Maria... Maria's paper is being graded by the teacher. Maria is an incredibly gifted writer whose writing is akin to maybe someone in their senior year, right? So the 12th grade, you know, maybe on the verge of of first year college. 
So the teacher, after reading Maria's assignment, pauses and reflects on the differences between Maria's and Jeremy's writing. And she thinks to herself, hmm, if Maria's a four, how can Jeremy be a four? So as a result of that reflection, she decides that since Maria is a four, Jeremy must be a three, and therefore she changes it. See the issue? Maria's exceptional writing should not diminish Jeremy's accomplishment at all. He met the criteria for the top level. As soon as the teacher examines Jeremy's work in comparison to Maria's, she was, in a way, you know, norming. I mean, we don't have enough students in our schools or at any level to do true norming, but it's that normative mindset, right? By reducing Jeremy's score, she's actually curved backwards. That's why I call it curving backwards, because real curving is typically about moving scores up, okay? Where you take the highest score in the class and advance it to 100, and then all other scores would be distributed from there. So for example, if the highest score on an assessment was 23 out of 30, you would add seven to the highest score, and then you'd add seven to everyone else's score, and then you would distribute the grades from there. And that's how you're curving. See, it's slightly different than grading on the curve. Um, what Jeremy and Maria's teacher did is kind of the opposite of that. That's why I call it backwards curving, right? She changed the criteria after it had already been established. Student scores really shouldn't be dependent upon who else is in the room. And again, the only comparison that matters is how the students compare to the established criteria. A standards-based instructional environment demands that student scores and grades neither be dependent upon who the teacher is, nor be dependent upon who else is in the room. And it's important that we establish clear performance criteria. That's essential so that we get valid and reliable assessment interpretations. However, that clarity can be all for naught if we fall back into normative habits that undermine the gist of what a criterion referencing system is all about. So look for those potential normative tendencies, the idea of leaving room, okay, the idea of curving backwards, and the idea of restricting access. Keep an eye out for those, and they can creep into our conversations and our discussions about assessment results, okay? Teachers who collaborate and calibrate to secure valid and reliable assessments will prevent one another from slipping back into old habits. Just being aware of the potential influence that these and other normative habits can have is already half the battle. A few announcements as we close out today. First, a reminder that the two-day Grading from the Inside Out virtual training is happening next week. Day one will be March 16th. Day two will be March 23rd. Also this summer, the Achieve Institute, which is the institute I mentioned uh, before, the Promising Practices in Instruction, Assessment, and Grading, that's going virtual this August 16th through 18th. And the nice part about virtual events, of course, is that you can participate in the event from literally anywhere in the world. Uh, that event features myself, Cassandra Erkins, uh, Nicole Dimich, and Katie White. So if you're interested in either of those events, head over to the solutiontree.com website for details. I've also added links in uh, for both events in the show notes. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter for updates. Uh, that handle is at Tom Shimmer Pod. You can follow me on Twitter as well. That's at Tom Shimmer. Uh, Shimmer Education on Facebook, Tom Shimmer Podcast on Instagram. And also, please email your questions for Assessment Corner 
or any suggestions you have for the podcast. That's TomShimmerPod at gmail.com. And a reminder to check out the YouTube channel as well, Tom Shimmer Podcast on YouTube. Next week, my guest is going to be Peter DeWitt. Peter, of course, is a globally recognized expert in educational leadership. We're going to focus on his latest book, Instructional Leadership, which is something educational leaders are all striving to become, right? Not just managers, but we want to be those instructional leaders. So please subscribe, rate, review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts. And, you know, if you feel up to spreading the word about the podcast, I would greatly appreciate that too. So have a great week, everyone.